This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. Mysticism, a study in nature and development of spiritual consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. Second half of part two, chapter six. Recollection. The beginning of the process of introversion, the first deliberate act in which the self turns towards the inward path, will not merely be the yielding to an instinct, the indulgence of a natural taste for reverie. It will be a voluntary and purposeful undertaking. Like conversion, it entails a break with the obvious, which must of necessity involve and affect the whole normal consciousness. It will be evoked by the mystic's love, and directed by his reason, but can only be accomplished by this generous exercise of his will. These preparatory labours of the contemplative life, these first steps upon the ladder, are, says St. Teresa, very hard, and require greater courage than all the rest. All the scattered interests of the self have here to be collected. There must be a deliberate and unnatural act of attention, a deliberate expelling of all discordant images from the consciousness, a hard and ungrateful task. Since the transcendental faculties are still young and weak, the sense is not wholly mortified. It needs a stern determination, a willful choice, if we are to succeed in concentrating our attention upon the whispered messages from within, undistracted by the loud voices which besiege us from without. How, says the disciple to the master in one of Boehm's dialogues, am I to seek in the centre this fountain of light, which may enlighten me throughout and bring my properties into perfect harmony? I am in nature, as I said before, and which way shall I pass through nature and the light thereof, so that I may come into the supernatural and supersensual ground whence this true light, which is the light of minds, doth arise? And this without the destruction of my nature, or quenching the light of it which is my reason? Master, cease but from thine own activity, steadfastly fixing thine eye upon one point. For this end, gather in all thy thoughts, and by faith press into the centre, laying hold upon the word of God, which is infallible, and which hath called thee. Be thou obedient to this call, and be silent before the Lord, sitting alone with him in thy inmost and most hidden cell, thy mind being centrally united in itself, and attending his will in the patience of hope. So shall thy light break forth as the morning, and after the redness thereof is past, the sun himself which thou waitest for, shall arise unto thee, and under his most healing wings thou shalt greatly rejoice, ascending and descending in his bright and health-giving beams. Behold, this is the true supersensual ground of life. In this short paragraph, Boehm has caught and described the psychological state in which all introversion must begin, the primary simplification of consciousness, steadfastly fixing the soul's eye upon one point, and the turning inwards of the whole cognitive powers for a purpose rather believed in than known, by faith pressing into the centre. The unfortunate word recollection, which the hasty reader is apt to connect with remembrance, is the traditional term by which mystical writers define just such a voluntary concentration, such a first collecting or gathering in of the attention of the self to its most hidden cell. That self is as yet unacquainted with the strange plane of silence which so soon becomes familiar to those who attempt even the lowest activities of the contemplative life, where the self is released from succession, the noises of the world are never heard, and the great adventures of the spirit take place. 
It stands here between the two planes of its being. The eye of time is still awake. It knows that it wants to enter the inner world, that interior palace where the king of kings is guest. But it must find some device to help it over the threshold. Rather, in the language of psychology, to shift that threshold and permit its subliminal intuition of the absolute to emerge. This device is, as a rule, the practice of meditation, in which the state of recollection usually begins. That is to say, the deliberate consideration of, and dwelling upon, some one aspect of reality, an aspect most usually chosen from amongst the religious beliefs of the self. Thus Hindu mystics will brood upon a sacred word, whilst Christian contemplatives set before their minds one of the names or attributes of God, a fragment of scripture, an incident of the life of Christ, and allow, indeed encourage, this consideration and the ideas and feelings which flow from it to occupy the whole mental field. This powerful suggestion, kept before the consciousness by an act of will, overpowers the stream of small suggestions which the outer world pours incessantly upon the mind. The self, concentrated upon this image or idea, dwelling on it more than thinking about it, as one may gaze upon a picture that one loves, falls gradually and insensibly into the condition of reverie, and, protected by this holy daydream from the more distracting dream of life, sinks into itself, and becomes, in the language of asceticism, recollected, or gathered together. Although it is deliberately ignoring the whole of its usual external universe, its faculties are wide awake. All have had their part in the willful production of this state of consciousness, and this it is which marks off meditation and recollection from the higher or infused degrees of horizon. Such meditation as this, says Richard of St. Victor, is the activity proper to one who has attained the first degree of ardent love. By it, God enters into the mind, and the mind also enters into itself, and thus receives in its inmost cell the first visit of the beloved. It is a kind of halfway house between the perception of appearance and the perception of reality. To one in whom this state is established, consciousness seems like a blank field, save for the one point in its centre, the subject of the meditation. Towards this focus the introversive self seems to press inwards from every side, still faintly conscious of the buzz of the external world outside its ramparts, but refusing to respond to its appeals. Presently the subject of meditation begins to take on a new significance, to glow with life and light. The contemplative suddenly feels that he knows it, in the complete, vital, but indescribable way in which one knows a friend. More, through it hints are coming to him of mightier, nameless things. It ceases to be a picture, and becomes a window through which the mystic peers out into the spiritual universe, and apprehends to some extent, though how he knows not, the veritable presence of God. In these meditative and recollective states, the self still feels very clearly the edge of its own personality, its separateness from the somewhat other, the divine reality set over against the soul. It is aware of that reality. The subject of its meditation becomes a symbol through which it receives a distinct message from the transcendental world. But it is still operating in a natural way, as mystical writers would say, by means of the faculties. There is yet no conscious fusion with a greater life, no resting in the divine atmosphere as in the quiet, no involuntary and ecstatic lifting up of the soul to direct apprehension of truth as in contemplation. Recollection is a definite psychic condition, which has logical psychic results. Originally induced by meditation, 
or absolved brooding upon certain aspects of the real, it develops in the self, by way of the strenuous control exercised by the will over the understanding, a power of cutting its connection with the external world and retreating to the inner world of the spirit. True recollection, says St. Teresa, has characteristics by which it can be easily recognized. It produces a certain effect which I do not know how to explain, but which is well understood by those who have experienced it. It is true that recollection has several degrees, and that in the beginning these great effects are not felt, because it is not yet profound enough. But support the pain which you first feel in recollecting yourself. Despise the rebellion of nature. Overcome the resistance of the body, which loves a liberty which is its ruin. Learn self-conquest. Persevere thus for a time, and you will perceive very clearly the advantages which you gain from it. As soon as you apply yourself to horizon, you will at once feel your senses gather themselves together. They seem like bees which return to the hive and there shut themselves up to work at the making of honey. And this will take place without effort or care on your part. God thus rewards the violence which your soul has been doing to itself and gives to it such a domination over the senses that a sign is enough when it desires to recollect itself for them to obey and so gather themselves together. At the first call of the will, they come back more and more quickly. At last, after countless exercises of this kind, God disposes them to a state of utter rest and of perfect contemplation. This description makes it clear that recollection is a form of spiritual gymnastics, less valuable for itself than for the training which it gives, the power which it develops. In it, says St. Teresa again, the soul enters with its God into that paradise which is within itself, and shuts the door behind it upon all the things of the world. You should know, my daughters, she continues, that this is no supernatural act, but depends upon our will, and that therefore we can do it with that ordinary assistance of God, which we need for all our acts and even for our good thoughts. For here we are not concerned with the silence of the faculties, but with the simple retreat of these powers into the ground of the soul, there are various ways of arriving at it, and these are described in different books. There it is said that we must abstract the mind from exterior things, in order that we may inwardly approach God. That even in our work we ought to retire within ourselves, though it be only for a moment. That this remembrance of a God who companions us within is a great help to us. Finally, that we ought little by little to habituate ourselves to gentle and silent converse with him, so that he may make us feel his presence in the soul. Quiet. More important for us, because more characteristically mystical, is the next great stage of horizon, that curious and extremely definite mental state which mystics call the prayer of quiet, or simplicity, or sometimes the interior silence. This represents the result for consciousness of a further degree of that inward retreat which recollection began. Out of the deep, slow brooding and pondering on some mystery, some incomprehensible link between himself and the real, or the deliberate practice of loving attention to God, the contemplative, perhaps by way of a series of moods and acts which his analytic powers may cause him nicely to distinguish, glides almost insensibly onto a plane of perception for which human speech has few equivalents. It is a plane which is apparently characterized by an immense increase in the receptivity of the self and by an almost complete suspension of the reflective powers. The strange silence which is the outstanding quality of this state, almost the only note in regard to it, 
which the surface intelligence can secure, is not describable. Here Samuel Rutherford said of another of life's secrets, Come and see will tell you much, come nearer will say more. Here the self passes beyond the stage at which its perceptions are capable of being dealt with by thought. It can no longer take notes, can only surrender itself to the stream of an inflowing life and to the direction of a larger will. Discursive thought would only interfere with this process, as it interferes with the vital processes of the body if it once gets them under its control. That thought, then, already disciplined by recollection, gathered up and forced to work in the interests of the transcendental mind, is now to be entirely inhibited. As recollection becomes deeper, the self slides into a certain dim yet vivid consciousness of the infinite. The door tight shut on the sensual world, it becomes aware that it is immersed in a more real world which it cannot define. It rests quietly in this awareness, quite silent, utterly at peace. In the place of the struggles for complete concentration which mark the beginning of recollection, there is now a living, somehow self-acting recollection, with God, His peace, power and presence, right in the midst of this rose of spiritual fragrance. With this surrender to something bigger, as with the surrender of conversion, comes an immense relief of strain. This is quiet in its most perfect form. This sinking, as it were, of the little child of the infinite into its father's arms, the giving up of eyehood, the process of self-stripping, which we have seen to be the essence of the purification of the self, finds its parallel in this phase of the contemplative experience. Here, in this complete cessation of man's proud effort to do somewhat of himself, humility, who rules the fourth degree of love, begins to be known in her paradoxical beauty and power. Consciousness loses to find, and dies that it may live. No longer in Roll's pungent phrase is it a ransacker of the might of God and of his majesty. Thus the act by which it passes into the quiet is a sacrament of the whole mystic quest, of the turning from doing to being, the abolition of separateness in the interests of the absolute life. The state of quiet, we have said, entails suspension of the surface consciousness, yet consciousness of the subject's personality remains. It follows generally on a period of deliberate and loving recollection, of a slow and steady withdrawal of the attention from the channels of sense. To one who is entering this state, the external world seems to get further and further away, till at last nothing but the paramount fact of his own existence remains. So startling, very often, is the deprivation of all his accustomed mental furniture, of the noise and flashing of the transmitting instruments of sense, that the negative aspect of his condition dominates consciousness, and he can but describe it as a nothingness, a pure passivity, an emptiness, a naked horizon. He is there, as it were, poised, resting, waiting. He does not know for what, only he is conscious that all, even in this utter emptiness, is well. Presently, however, he becomes aware that something fills this emptiness, something omnipresent, intangible, like sunny air. Ceasing to attend to the messages from without, he begins to notice that which has always been within. His whole being is thrown open to its influence. It permeates his consciousness. There are, then, two aspects of the horizon of quiet. The aspect of deprivation, of emptiness which begins it, and the aspect of acquisition, of something found in which it is complete. In its description, all mystics will be found to lean to one side or the other, 
to the affirmative or negative element which it contains. The austere mysticism of Eckhart and his followers, their temperamental sympathy with the Neoplatonic language of Dionysius the Areopagite, cause them to describe it, and also very often the higher state of contemplation to which it leads, as above all things an emptiness, a divine dark, an ecstatic deprivation. They will not profane its deep satisfactions by the inadequate terms proper to earthly peace and joy, and, true to their school, fall back on the paradoxically suggestive powers of negation. To St. Teresa and mystics of her type, on the other hand, even a little and inadequate image of its joy seems better than none. To them it is a sweet calm, a gentle silence in which the lover apprehends the presence of the beloved, a God-given state over which the self has little control. In Eckhart's writings, enthusiastic descriptions of the quiet, of inward silence and passivity as the fruit of a deliberate recollection, abound. In his view, the psychical state of quiet is preeminently that in which the soul of man begins to be united with its ground, pure being. It marks the transition from natural to supernatural prayer, the emptying of the field of consciousness, its cleansing of all images, even of those symbols of reality which are the objects of meditation, is the necessary condition under which alone this encounter can take place. The soul, he says, with all its powers, has divided and scattered itself in outward things, each according to its functions, the power of sight in the eye, the power of hearing in the ear, the power of taste in the tongue, and thus they are the less able to work inwardly, for every power which is divided is imperfect. So the soul, if she would work inwardly, must call home all her powers and collect them from all divided things to one inward work. If a man will work an inward work, he must pour all his powers into himself, as into a corner of the soul, and must hide himself from all images and forms, and then he can work. Then he must come into a forgetting and a not knowing. He must be in a stillness and silence, where the word may be heard. One cannot draw near to this word better than by stillness and silence. Then it is heard and understood in utter ignorance. When one knows nothing, it is opened and revealed. Then we shall become aware of the divine ignorance, and our ignorance will be ennobled and adorned with supernatural knowledge. And when we simply keep ourselves receptive, we are more perfect than when at work. The psychic state of quiet has a further value for the mystic, as being the intellectual complement and expression of the moral state of humility and receptivity. The very condition, says Eckhart, of the new birth. It may be asked whether this birth is best accomplished in man when he does the work and forms and thinks himself into God, and when he keeps himself in silence, stillness and peace, so that God may speak and work in him. The best and noblest way in which thou mayst come into this work and life is by keeping silence and letting God work and speak. When all the powers are withdrawn from their work and images, there is this word spoken. Eckhart's view of the primary importance of quiet as essentially the introverted state is shared by all those medieval mystics who lay stress on the psychological rather than the objective aspect of the spiritual life. They regard it as the necessary preliminary of all contemplation and describe it as a normal phase of the inner experience, possible of attainment by all those who have sufficiently disciplined themselves in patience, recollection and humility. In an old English mystical tract by the author of The Cloud of Unknowing, there is a curious and detailed instruction on the disposition of mind proper to this horizon of silence, 
it clearly owes much to the teaching of the Areopagite, and something surely, if we may judge by its vivid and exact instructions, to personal experience. When thou comest by thyself, says the master to the disciple from whom this epistle was composed, think not before what thou shalt do after, but forsake as well good thoughts as evil thoughts, and pray not with thy mouth, but lift thee right well, and look that nothing live in thy working mind, but a naked intent stretching unto God, not clothed in any special thought of God in thyself, how he is in himself or in any of his works, but only that he is as he is. Let him be so, I pray thee, and make him on none otherwise speech, nor search in him by subtlety of wit, but believe thy ground. This naked intent, freely fastened and grounded by very belief, shall be naught else to thy thought and thy feeling, but a naked thought and a blind feeling of thine own being. That darkness be thy mirror and thy mind whole. Think no further of thyself than I bid thee do of thy God, so that thou be one with him in spirit as in thought, without departing and scattering. For he is thy being, and in him thou art that thou art, not only by cause and by being, but also he is in thee both thy cause and thy being. And therefore think on God as in this work as thou dost on thyself, and on thyself as thou dost on God, that he is as he is, and thou art as thou art, and that thy thought be not scattered nor departed, but privied in him that is all. Let him be so, I pray thee. It is an admonition against spiritual worry, an entreaty to the individual already at work, twisting experience to meet his own conceptions, to let things be as they are, to receive and be content. Leave off doing that you may be. Leave off analysis that you may know. That meek darkness be thy mirror. Humble receptivity is the watchword of this state. In this, says Eckhart finally, the soul is of equal capacity with God. As God is boundless in giving, so the soul is boundless in receiving. And as God is almighty in his work, so the soul is an abyss of receptivity. And so she is formed anew with God and in God. The disciples of St. Dionysius asked him why Timotheus passed them all in perfection. Then said Dionysius, Timotheus is receptive of God. And thus thine ignorance is not a defect, but thy highest perfection, and thine inactivity thy highest work. And so in this work thou must bring all thy works to naught, and all thy powers into silence, if thou wilt in truth experience this birth within thyself. It is interesting to contrast these descriptions of the quiet with St. Teresa's subjective account of the same psychological state. Where the English mystic's teaching is full of an implied appeal to the will, the Spanish saint is all for the involuntary, or as she would call it, the supernatural actions of the soul. This true horizon of quiet, she says, has in it an element of the supernatural. We cannot, in spite of all our efforts, procure it for ourselves. It is a sort of peace in which the soul establishes itself, or rather in which God establishes the soul, as he did the righteous Simeon. All her powers are at rest. She understands, but otherwise than by the senses, that she is already near her God, and that if she draws a little nearer, she will become by union one with him. She does not see this with the eyes of the body, nor with the eyes of the soul. It is like the repose of a traveller who, within sight of the goal, stops to take breath, and then continues with new strength upon his way. One feels a great bodily comfort, a great satisfaction of soul. 
such is the happiness of the soul in seeing herself close to the spring, that even without drinking of the waters she finds herself refreshed. It seems to her that she wants nothing more. The faculties which are at rest would like always to remain still, for the least of their movements is able to trouble or prevent her love. Those who are in this horizon wish their bodies to remain motionless, for it seems to them at the least movement they will lose this sweet peace. They are in the palace close to their king, and they see that he begins to give them his kingdom. It seems to them that they are no longer in the world, and they wish neither to hear nor to see it, but only God. There is this difference between the horizon of quiet and that in which the whole soul is united to God, that in this last the soul has not to absorb the divine food. God deposits it with her, she knows not how. The horizon of quiet, on the other hand, demands, it seems to me, a slight effort, but it is accompanied by so much sweetness that one hardly feels it. A slight effort, says St. Teresa, a naked intent stretching, says the epistle of private counsel. These words mark the frontier between the true and healthy mystic state of quiet and its morbid perversion in quietism. The difference between the tense stillness of the athlete and the limp passivity of the sluggard who is really lazy, though he looks resigned. True quiet is a means, not an end, is actively embraced, not passively endured. It is a phase in the self's growth in contemplation, a bridge which leads from its old and uncoordinated life of activity to its new unified life of deep action, the real mystic life of man. This state is desired by the mystic, not in order that consciousness may remain a blank, but in order that the word which is alive may be written thereon. Too often, however, this fact has been ignored, and the interior silence has been put by wayward transcendentalists to other and less admirable use. Quiet is the danger zone of introversion. Of all forms of mystical activity, perhaps this has been the most abused, the least understood. Its theory seized upon, divorced from its context, and developed to excess, produced the foolish and dangerous exaggerations of quietism, and these, in their turn, caused a wholesale condemnation of the principle of passivity, and made many superficial persons regard naked horizon as an essentially heretical act. The accusation of quietism has been hurled at mystics, whose only fault was a looseness of language which laid them open to misapprehension. Others, however, have certainly contrived, by a perversion and isolation of the teachings of great contemplatives on this point, to justify the deliberate production of a half-hypnotic state of passivity. With this meaningless state of absorption in nothing at all, they were content, claiming that in it they were in touch with the divine life, and therefore exempt from the usual duties and limitations of human existence. Quietism, usually, and rather unfairly, regarded as the special folly of Madame Guyon and her disciples, already existed in a far more dangerous form in the Middle Ages, and was described and denounced by Rusburick, one of the greatest masters of true introversion whom the Christian world has known. Such quietude, he says, is naught else but idleness, into which a man has fallen, and in which he forgets himself and God, and all things in all that has to do with activity. This repose is wholly contrary to the supernatural repose one possesses in God, for that is a loving self-mergence and simple gazing at the incomprehensible brightness, actively sought with inward desire, and found in fruitive inclination. 
when a man possesses this rest in false idleness, and all loving adherence seems a hindrance to him, he clings to himself in his quietude, and lives contrary to the first way in which man is united with God, and this is the beginning of all ghostly error. There can be no doubt that for cells of a certain psychical constitution, such a false idleness is only too easy of attainment. They can, by willful self-suggestion, deliberately produce this emptiness, this inward silence, and luxuriate in its peaceful effects. To do this from self-regarding motives, or to do it to excess, to let peaceful enjoyment swamp active love, is a mystical vice, and this perversion of the spiritual faculties, like perversion of the natural faculties, brings degeneration in its train. It leads to the absurdities of holy indifference, and ends in the complete stultification of the mental and moral life. The true mystic never tries deliberately to enter the horizon of quiet. With St. Teresa he regards it as a supernatural gift beyond his control, though fed by his will and love. That is to say, where it exists in a healthy form, it appears spontaneously as a phase in normal development, not as a self-induced condition, a psychic trick. The balance to be struck in this stage of introversion can only be expressed, it seems, in paradox. The true condition of quiet, according to the great mystics, is at once active and passive. It is pure surrender, but a surrender which is not limp self-abandonment, but rather the free and constantly renewed self-giving and self-emptying of a burning love. The departmental intellect is silenced, but the totality of character is flung open to the influence of the real. Personality is not lost, only its hard edge is gone. A rest most busy, says Hilton. Like the soaring of an eagle, says Augustine Baker, when the flight is continued for a good space with a great swiftness, but withal with great stillness, quietness and ease, without any waving of the wings at all, or the least force used in any member, being in as much ease and stillness as if she were reposing in her nest. According to the unanimous teaching of the most experienced and explicit of the specifically theistic and Christian mystics, says von Hugel, the appearance, the soul's own impression, of a cessation of life and energy of the soul in periods of special union with God, or of great advance in spirituality, is an appearance only. Indeed, this, at such times strong, impression of rest, springs most certainly from an unusually large amount of actualized energy, an energy which is now penetrating and finding expression by every pore and fibre of the soul. The whole moral and spiritual creature expands and rests, yes, but this very rest is produced by action, unperceived because so fleet, so near, so all-fulfilling. The great teachers of quietism, having arrived at and experienced the psychological state of quiet, having known the ineffable peace and certainty, the bliss which follows on its act of complete surrender, its utter and speechless resting in the absolute life, believed themselves to have discovered in this halfway house the goal of the mystic quest. Therefore, whilst much of their teaching remains true, as a real description of a real and valid state experienced by almost all contemplatives in the course of their development, the inference which they drew from it, that in this mere blank abiding in the deeps the soul had reached the end of her course, was untrue and bad for life. Thus Molinos gives in the spiritual guide many unexceptional maxims upon interior silence. By not speaking nor desiring and not thinking, 
he says justly enough of the contemplative spirit. She arrives at the true and perfect mystical silence wherein God speaks with the soul, communicates himself to it, and in the abyss of its own depth teaches it the most perfect and exalted wisdom. He calls and guides it to this inward solitude and mystical silence, when he says that he will speak to it alone in the most secret and hidden part of the heart. Here Molinos speaks the language of all mystics, yet the total result of his teaching was to suggest to the ordinary mind that there was a peculiar virtue in doing nothing at all, and that all deliberate spiritual activities were bad. Much of the teaching of modern mystical cults is thus crudely quietistic. It insists on the necessity of going into the silence, and even with a strange temerity, gives preparatory lessons in subconscious meditation, a proceeding which might well provoke the laughter of the saints. The faithful being gathered together are taught by simple exercises and recollection the way to attain the quiet. By this mental trick, the modern transcendentalist naturally attains to a state of vacant placidity, in which he rests, and remaining in a distracted idleness and misspending the time in expectation of extraordinary visits, believes, with a faith which many of the orthodox might envy, that he is here united with his principle. But, though the psychological state which contemplatives call the prayer of quiet is a common condition of mystical attainment, it is not by itself mystical at all. It is a state of preparation, a way of opening the door. That which comes in when the door is opened will be that which we truly and passionately desire. The will makes plain the way. The heart, the whole man, conditions the guest. The true contemplative, coming to this plane of utter stillness, does not desire extraordinary favours and visitations, but the privilege of breathing for a little while the atmosphere of love. He is about that which St. Bernard called the business of all businesses, goes in perfect simplicity to the encounter of perfection, not to the development of himself. So, even at this apparently passive stage of his progress, the mystic's operations are found on analysis to have a dynamic and purposive character. His very repose is the result of stress. He is a pilgrim that still seeks his country. Urged by his innate tendency to transcendence, he is on his way to higher levels, more sublime fulfilments, greater self-giving acts. Though he may have forsaken all superficial activity, deep, urgent action still remains. The possession of God, says Rusburick, demands and supposes active love. He who thinks or feels otherwise is deceived. All our life as it is in God is immersed in blessedness. All our life as it is in ourselves is immersed in active love. And though we live wholly in ourselves and wholly in God, it is but one life, but it is twofold and opposite according to our feeling, rich and poor, hungry and fulfilled, active and quiet. The essential difference between this true active quiet and quietism of all kinds has been admirably expressed by Baron von Hugel. Quietism, the doctrine of the one act, passivity in a literal sense, as the absence or imperfection of the power or use of initiative on the soul's part, in any and every state. These doctrines were finally condemned, and most rightly and necessarily condemned, the prayer of quiet and the various states and degrees of an ever-increasing predominance of action over activity, an action which is all the more the soul's very own, because the more occasioned, directed, and informed by God's action and stimulation. 
these and the other chief lines of the ancient experience and practice remain as true, correct, and necessary as ever. The ever-increasing predominance of action over activity, the deep and vital movement of the whole self, too utterly absorbed for self-consciousness, set over against its fussy surface energies, here is the true ideal of horizon. This must inform all the soul's aspiration towards union with the absolute life and love which waits at the door. It is an ideal which includes quiet, as surely as it excludes quietism. As for that doctrine of the one act here mentioned, which was preached by the more extreme quietists, it, like all else in this movement, was the perversion of a great mystical truth. It taught that the turning of the soul towards reality, the merging of the will in God, which is the very heart of the mystic life, was one act never to be repeated. This done, the self had nothing more to do but to rest in the divine life, be its unresisting instrument. Pure passivity and indifference were its ideal. All activity was forbidden it. All choice was a negation of its surrender. All striving was unnecessary and wrong. It needed only to rest for evermore and let God work and speak in the silence. This doctrine is so utterly at variance with all that we know of the laws of life and growth that it hardly seems to stand in need of condemnation. Such a state of indifference which the quietest strove in vain to identify with that state of pure love which seeketh not its own in spiritual things, cannot coexist with any of those degrees of ardent charity through which man's spirit must pass on its journey to the one, and this alone is enough to prove its non-mystical character. It is only fair to Madame Guyon to say that she cannot justly be charged with preaching this exaggeration of passivity, though a loose and fluid style has allowed many unfortunate inferences to be drawn from her works. Some persons, she says, when they hear of the prayer of quiet, falsely imagine that the soul remains stupid, dead, and inactive. But unquestionably it acted therein more nobly and more extensively than it had ever done before. For God himself is the mover, and the soul now acteth by the agency of his spirit. Instead, then, of promoting idleness, we promote the highest activity, by inculcating a total dependence on the Spirit of God as our moving principle, for in Him we live and move and have our being. Our activity should therefore consist in endeavouring to acquire and maintain such a state as may be most susceptible of divine impressions, most flexile to all the operations of the eternal word. Whilst a tablet is unsteady, the painter is unable to delineate a true copy, so every act of our own selfish and proper spirit is productive of false and erroneous lineaments. It interrupts the work and defeats the design of this adorable artist. The true mystics in whom the horizon of quiet develops to this state of receptivity seldom use in describing it the language of holy indifference. Their love and enthusiasm will not let them do that. It is true, of course, that they are indifferent to all else save the supreme claims of love, but then it is of love that they speak. Ego domio et meum vigilat. This, says St. Teresa, is a sleep of the powers of the soul, which are not wholly lost, nor yet understanding how they are at work. To me it seems to be nothing else than a death, as it were, to all the things of this world, and a fruition of God. I know of no other words whereby to describe it or explain it. Neither does the soul then know what to do 
for it knows not whether to speak or be silent, whether it should laugh or weep. It is a glorious folly, a heavenly madness wherein true wisdom is acquired, and to the soul a kind of fruition most full of delight. The faculties of the soul now retain only the power of occupying themselves wholly with God. Not one of them ventures to stir. Neither can we move one of them without making great efforts to distract ourselves. And indeed, I do not think we can do it at all at this time. Here, then, we see the horizon of silence melting into true contemplation. Its stillness is ruffled by its joy. The quiet reveals itself as an essentially transitional state, introducing the self into a new sphere of activity. The second degree of ardent love, says Richard of St. Victor, binds, so that the soul which is possessed by it is unable to think of anything else. It is not only insuperable, but also inseparable. He compares it to the soul's bridle, the irrevocable act by which permanent union is initiated. The feeling state which is the equivalent of the quiet is just such a passive and joyous yielding up of the virgin soul to its bridegroom, a silent marriage vow. It is ready for all that may happen to it, all that may be asked of it, to give itself and lose itself, to wait upon the pleasure of its love. From this inward surrender, the self emerges to the new life, the new knowledge which is mediated to it under the innumerable forms of contemplation. End of part two, chapter six.